Why don't you grab your Bibles, go to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. Today is known as Black Sunday in the pastoral business. Most people wake up and are like, I'm not going to church today, but you, you showed up. And so we are glad you are here. We are thankful you are here, and I am grateful and thankful that as we got to sing this morning, that, that, that your instrument was in tune. Well, maybe in tune is probably not the right thing to say. It was turned up. How's that? There was nothing better than hearing the voices of brothers and sisters in Christ declaring the truths that we were singing this morning. There's nothing better than being reminded that our being a survivor has nothing to do with us pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. It has to do with the love and grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, and so it gave me goosebumps, and I continue to have them from you guys singing this morning, so thank you. Thank you for encouraging my soul. Thank you for being a part of the worship this morning. That's right, and now you have to listen to me, sorry. All right, Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, we're continuing through our study of the book of Mark. Um, we, 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 um, well, let me, let me, I hate commercials, but let me do a quick commercial. Next week is Mark chapter 12. I know that surprises some of you. But Mark chapter 12 is next week. The, the focus next week in Mark chapter 12, I'm going to take advantage, I don't know if it's advantage or it's foolishness. I'm going to take advantage of um, the text in Mark chapter 12 where Jesus speaks of giving to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God. So next week it's going to be about politics. First service has gotten a little crowded, so we've got to clear some seats. So some of you never come back maybe after that, but that's all right. Um, so I want to encourage you to be here. Be a part of it. Be thinking of some questions that you may have. We're going to try to have an opportunity for you to ask some questions and to respond to some of those. Let's just remember, though, um, don't come expecting a political rally for either party, either party, however you're supposed to say it, or any individual. Come expecting to hear about how you have been created in God's image, and when he commands you to render to God what is God's, he's talking about you. So don't hold anything back. So I should get in enough trouble and hopefully come out of that trouble by Easter so you've forgiven me by then. So Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, very familiar story. Let me read the first 11 verses here. Follow along with me. When they approached Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and he told them this. Go into the village, the one ahead of you, and as soon as you enter it, you will find a colt. It's tied to there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it. Bring it. And if anybody says to you, why are you doing this? Well, say the Lord needs it. And we'll send it back here right away. So they went and they found a colt outside the street, tied by a door. They untied it. And some of those who were standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they answered them just as Jesus had said, so they let them go. They brought the donkey to Jesus. They threw their clothes on it. And he sat on it. Many people spread their clothes on the road, and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. And after looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. We come to a, a very familiar story um, uh, in scripture this morning. We're also going to follow up with a couple of other, one sort of familiar story, yet very confusing, and one very familiar but often misunderstood story as we continue through our morning. All three stories have something in common, and it's this. Appearances aren't always what they seem. 
it isn't always what you see is what you get. When you, the, 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 I was asking my family, what's a good picture of that? Appearances versus reality. We had a few options. My entire family hates raisins. There's something wrong with them. I love oatmeal raisin cookies. My wife is an incredible baker. She makes me oatmeal raisin cookies, and the beautiful thing is they're all mine. Now, one of the most disappointing things for my family is thinking that mom perhaps has made their favorite chocolate chip cookies and picking up a chocolate chip cookie and biting into it to find raisins. Very disappointing. Appearance versus reality. Appearance versus reality. A number of years ago, my wife and I had the privilege of doing the counseling for a, a young um, Eastern European couple uh, and then uh, did their, their wedding. Now, it was very different, uh, very different, very different. Um, like, for example, um, it was an hour, about an hour after the wedding was supposed to start. We still had yet to see the bride. The groom was there. The bride wasn't. And it wasn't because she was getting cold feet, because that was her day. So you'll all wait. Okay, that's cool. Now, if you got to know her, you would not expect that from her. Appearance versus reality is what we got to see. On top of that, we went to the reception. It was a very small wedding. And we went to the reception, and one of my, our good friends, Vicky, was there with us. And this thing had, if it was one course, it was eight courses of meal. I mean, the food just kept coming. The problem was most of it was unrecognizable. And so at one point, they brought out fried chicken. And that's, that's right. It was like, okay, glory, I'm going to be fine. I'm going to make it. And so I'm hammering it. My wife is hammering it. And our friend Vicky is just, oh, this is so good. And the waitress came back with the next round of food, go figure. And Vicky looked at the waitress and was like, that was so good. And she's like, oh, I'm glad you enjoy rabbit. <laughs> and the face of our friend Vicky dropped. And she was pale and a, just, just, just furious that what she had thought was fried chicken, actually in reality, was rabbit. It doesn't end there. A few minutes later, we get to the highlight of the wedding for my wife is wedding cake. I'm not a big wedding cake guy, and so we have a little deal worked out. If she comes with me to the wedding as my date, I will get a piece of wedding cake so she can have two. Okay? So her and Vicky, Stephanie and Vicky, were kind of having this look at each other like, I'm getting the bigger piece. Oh, no, I'm getting the bigger piece. Oh, oh, oh. And this thing came out, and it was this huge, glorious cake wrapped in, like, orange fondant. So it was that thick, and it was just like, that's a cake. That's a, and they start cutting it, and you can watch Vicky and Steph next to me, like, eyeballing each other, like, I'm getting the big one, I'm getting the big one. And so they're looking, and they're salivating over what seems to be this most beautiful and wonderful wedding cake. And so... The pieces come out, and Vicky's like, puts this huge monstrosity of a piece in front of her and gloats. And my poor wife is like, I only got a small piece. I'm like, baby girl, you can have my piece. It's okay, because I love you like that, right? And I hate cake, but that's okay. So, <laughs> and it's within a moment or two, my wife looks at me, and she's like, mm-mm. What? Mm-mm-mm. Mm-mm-mm-mm. What? It ain't wedding cake. It's mango mousse. Yeah, tastes about as good as it sounds. But the best part was my wife only had a little tiny piece she had to hide. We looked down the table and Vicky's like, <laughs> see, appearances and reality. In this very familiar story we already read, you've got this triumphal entry. It's this moment that we've all 
been familiar with. And actually, you get down to the very basics of it. And remember, challenge yourself with this thinking. Jesus has told two of his disciples to go steal somebody's donkey. So, so I want to know which two disciples are like, I'm not it. Oh. So they had to go get this donkey. But actually, it's a fulfillment of a very specific prophecy that had come almost 500 years before Jesus was born. And the Jews were just being released from exile. And the prophet Zechariah says... Uh, he calls the people to repentance. He prophesied about the coming Messiah, the coming king. And Zechariah 9, 9 says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Your king is coming to you. He is righteous, and he's victorious. He's humble, and he's riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. And in this moment, as Jesus rides into town on the back of a donkey, He's demonstrating to the people that he's the one Zechariah had been prophesying about. By riding on the colt instead of walking, he's showing every Jew who knows scripture that he is their king. The people come before him as he rides into town. They're throwing their garments down. They're taking the branches, the leafy branches. Uh, the Gospel of John tells us they're palm branches. And they're shouting, Hosanna! Save now! We look at that and we're like, oh, look, the worship. Folks, what appearance is not reality. While they appeared to be worshiping the king who was coming into town, they were actually worshiping what they hoped that king would be. Instead of worshiping the Messiah they needed, they were falling on their faces before a political figure they wanted. Many of those same people later that week would shout again. This time they would shout for the very crucifixion of Jesus. The appearance isn't always as it seems. And that's true in the triumphal entry. It's true in this next story. Look at verse 12. The next day when Jesus and his disciples went out from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find out if there was anything on it. But when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it wasn't the season for figs. Jesus spoke to the tree and said, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Okay, so, so, so Jesus uh, has ridden into town, and actually this is kind of missed. Uh, verse 11 is kind of overlooked, and I kind of did it too, so let me go back a second. You've got Jesus riding into town on the back of a donkey. You've got all the people going nuts. He's entering Jerusalem, and then verse 11, he ends up at the temple. And it says in verse 11, he goes to the temple, he looks around, realizes it's already kind of late, and he heads back to Bethany. So, so there's a lot of theories as to why that has happened. I just read one this morning that's actually fascinating. I don't know if I believe it or not, but I just thought I'd share it with you just so that you could get a kick out of it too. When Jesus gives instructions to the disciples to go get the donkey, he says, well, what happens if somebody asks us what we're doing? Well, you tell them the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back right away. So somebody is making, uh, is of the opinion that when Jesus got to the temple that night, he looked at his watch or sundial or whatever he had, realized it's kind of late, got to get the donkey back. And they headed back to Bethany, uh, about a mile and a half away from Jerusalem. So that's possible. We're not sure. Next morning, Jesus gets up. He's hungry. 
he leaves Bethany, he begins to walk towards Jerusalem, and he looks at the distance and he sees a fig tree. Now, fig trees could be 10, 12, 15, even 20 feet tall, so these things can be pretty big. And as Jesus is, is approaching this tree, he notices it's full of leaves. He looks for fruit on it, realizes there's no fruit on it, and so then he curses the fig tree. Now, Jesus has taken a lot of bad press on this one. That there are people who have built their case on their agnosticism or atheism based on the fact that Jesus would behave in such a manner. What an angry person Jesus must be to do these things. Why would Jesus be so grumpy? Now, this is actually a visual parable. He's preparing them for something that they're about to witness. And you have to understand how a fig tree works. So when you get to March or April, which is the time period Jesus and his disciples are in, you get to March or April, the fig tree begins to, to, to produce the, 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 the leaves, and it begins to sprout leaves. And then on the branches and in between all the leaves, it begins to produce something that's known as early figs. Now, there's not a lot, and actually the early figs are growing on top of last year's growth of the tree, not this coming season. And so you would approach it, and there'd be little tiny. They're smaller than normal figs. They're not as tasty. They're not as sweet. And so when G, the, the main crop of figs, let me say that, the main crop of figs would actually come in late summer or early fall. But what would happen is if you approached one of these fig trees in spring, March or April, and you found little early figs, then rest assured you're going to get figs later in the season. But if you approach this leafy tree and there were no early figs on it, then rest assured there would be no fruit later. Now from a distance, Jesus is looking at this fig tree and the thing is loaded with trees. And by all appearances, it seemed like it was a healthy fig tree. So at the very least, he'd get a little snack on the okay figs. But this tree eventually is going to produce a mass crop of figs. But when Jesus approached it, he found no early figs. And what he recognized was as healthy as the tree looked. As healthy as the tree may have appeared, in fact, on the inside, it was diseased or dying. How this thing looked really didn't matter, did it? It was what's going on on the inside that mattered. Keep reading verse 15. They came to Jerusalem. Jesus went into the temple. And he began to throw out those who were buying and selling He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those who were selling doves, and he would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. He was teaching them, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. The chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. So here's Jesus entering the temple. This temple is the renovated second temple. If you know your history of Israel, you know that the original temple was built by Solomon. It was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. You go about, fast forward about 50 years from that, so you're around 530-ish B.C. When got two of the coolest names in the Bible, these guys Haggai and Zerubbabel. So if you're expecting a child, Zerubbabel, haven't heard a lot of them lately. It's available. Knock yourself out. Uh, Haggai and Zerubbabel oversee the building uh, of the second temple. That second temple existed for about 500 years. And it was uh, in this period, just before Jesus was born, that that second temple really was kind of in a a state of disrepair. 
And so the leader of the time, Herod the Great, started remodeling this temple in 20 BC. And this remodel job wasn't just a simple, let's throw some paint on this thing and call it a day. This was a monstrosity. Herod began to rebuild this thing as if Solomon himself was standing there. And so now in existence in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus, when Jesus comes in, there, there is this temple uh, 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 compound. And inside, there, there's gates on the outside. And when you would enter the first gate and you would come into the temple court, the outer part of the court was called the, the court of Gentiles. You want to know how big the temple pro, uh, uh, court was? 500 yards by 325 yards. That is 35 acres of land. 35 acres of land. And outside, surrounding that uh, uh, 500 by 325 yard space, <coughs> excuse me, there were uh, 35, I'm sorry, no, okay, columns that were 35 feet tall. And the columns were so wide, the, the historian Josephus says it would take three men linking arms to be able to get around the column huge. And inside of that court, the big, huge space of 35 acres, you had the court of Gentiles, which is the large one surrounding everything. You had the court of women, which is the furthest the women could enter into the temple compound. You had the court of the Israelites, which is a place reserved for the ritually pure Jewish men only. And then in, 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 in the section of it, the western side of it, you had the temple proper, which was the temple building itself holy place. It included the holy of holies, that place where the very presence of God was known to exist, that place where the high priest could enter only once a year with all the ceremonial and ritual of the book of Leviticus. And in that temple compound, hundreds and thousands of people would gather, particularly on Passover, which is where we find ourselves today. So people would gather, come to the temple, and when they came at Passover, they were supposed to sacrifice a one-year-old lamb that had no blemish. Okay, that's the rule. All of them were supposed to bring a one-year-old, actually ten people could get in on the same lamb. That's just one of the rules that was made. And, and, and so Josephus tells us that in 66 AD, they kept count, and the week of Passover, 255,000 lambs were sacrificed that week. 255,000 lambs were sacrificed in one week. Can you imagine the smell? Can you imagine the noise? The chaos? So people would come from hundreds of miles away. Some of them would take days, some of them even weeks. And on their way to the temple, because they were required to sacrifice a one-year-old male lamb without blemish, they would bring with them a lamb from their flock. The challenge was to be able to leave home and end up at the temple with that one-year-old male lamb that had no blemish and get it to the temple still with no blemish. That's hard enough to do with children. But with a lamb, it's almost impossible. So imagine this, if you would. What if we had a convenient option where instead of bringing a lamb from home, well, then you would just come with money to the outer courts, the court of the Gentiles, the court of the nations there, and you could buy a lamb on the spot instead of carrying one from home. Think how much easier that is. Think how much more convenient that is. I mean, you just walk into the court and swipe your card and get a lamb. 
And you're not going to have to worry about a lamb losing an ear on the way from home to the temple. It's a wonderful option. Especially for the merchants. Because in that moment, you have supply and demand like no other. You can imagine what took place. It was price gouging. The merchants could charge whatever they wanted because there was a religious obligation on the purchase of these animals. They could charge double. They could charge triple the going rate for, for, for the animals because they had no other alternative. It's like when you go to a baseball game and you get hungry and you want a hot dog. How much does a hot dog actually cost in real life? 50 cents? Uh -uh. 10 bucks, please. $10 for meat that came off a floor? I'm sorry if I disappointed you with my observation and evaluation of hot dogs. But it's the same thing with the, 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 the folks there selling the animals in the temple. They've got you. And not only do they have you, and, and Mark focuses on this in particular, it wasn't just the selling of any animals. Mark focuses on the fact they were selling doves. To first read doesn't mean anything. But when you understand that the book of Leviticus makes a special provision for people who can't afford a lamb, those in poverty could bring doves. So it means these people who were working the, the court of the Gentiles were selling and taking advantage of the impoverished. No, but that's not it. It wasn't just them making money off of animals. There was also this temple tax that had to be paid. There was a half shekel tax that needed to be paid for every male who was over the age of 30. And you couldn't just show up and drop a, duck, a, a, a bucket in the, in the basket. You, you couldn't give your dirty money. It had to be a specific type of, of, of currency. It, it, it had to be a, a specific type of Tyrian currency, which is a jackpot for the merchant because they just happened to have the right currency with them. So the exchange rate would have been astronomical. And the merchants are just making straight, pure profit. So now in that court of Gentiles, on the outside of the, the temple grounds there, you know, there's buying and selling, and there's merchandising on a scale that's beyond our imagination. And so the noise, the bustle, there'd be deafening. And when Jesus entered there, he didn't just find it deafening, he found it infuriating. Because the purpose of that outer court of the temple, called the court of the Gentiles, was to be a place where the Gentiles could go, because they couldn't go any further into the temple. There were plaques and signs on the walls that, that warned the Gentiles if they entered in any further than the court of Gentiles, it would lead to their immediate death. So instead of it being a place where the Gentiles could come and, and try to find God, they turned it into a mall. So now you have all the noise, all the commotion of a mall. Gentiles are being deprived of the only place in the temple where they could actually worship. And Jesus takes over. The lamb of the Passover becomes the lion of Judah in that moment. And he stands up for the foreigner and he stops their commerce by flipping over tables. But it's more than that. He doesn't just flip over tables. It, it tells us in verse 16, he wouldn't permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. 
He says he wouldn't allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. That word goods or anything is a term that can be used for any object. It could be called anything. It's used in many places and translated literally as vessels. Uh, Isaiah 52 speaks of the vessels that I believe are being referenced here in Mark chapter 11. So what's happening? I think we should translate the word better uh, to translate the word instead of to, does not permit anyone to carry goods. It would not permit anyone to carry vessels through the temple. And what that would be referring to is the sacred temple vessels, the, the vessels for the showbread, the, the oil for the lamps, the incense censers used in the sacrificial service. So now Jesus hasn't just come and disrupted their commerce. He's come and he's disrupted their sacrifices. So now money can't be exchanged in the holy currency. So that's a financial impact for the, for the priesthood. That, so the financial uh, support of the priesthood ends. And if sacrificial animals can't be purchased, then the sacrifices must end. And if no vessels of worship can be carried through the temple, then all ritualistic activity ends. So Jesus comes to the temple, and he doesn't come just to cleanse the temple, as you've heard. He doesn't come just to purify the temple. He comes to shut it down. Why? Why would Jesus shut it down? Because in that moment, he's revealing to those people where salvation is actually anchored. It's not in the regular sacrifices that you can purchase in the court of Gentiles. It's in the unique, one time, for all time, sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the behalf of sinners. A few verses later in verse 45, sorry, in the last chapter 10, verse 45, it says, I have come to give my life a ransom for sins. A couple chapters from now, he institutes the new Passover based on his sacrifice. See, the temple and its sacrificial system are being brought into ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is the Lamb of God who is slain on behalf of the sins of his people. And so why did Jesus come to shut it down? Because the day of salvation was there. Why did Jesus come to shut it down? Because the temple was carrying the appearance of being busy. But in reality, it was dead. There was nothing of value that was being done. So think about it. The people gave the appearance of being all in on Jesus and his arrival as the Messiah, but the appearances weren't reality. The fig tree gave the appearance of being able to provide Jesus a snack, but the appearances weren't reality. The temple, it gave the appearance of being a hustling and bustling place of worship. But the appearances weren't reality. Look at verse 20. It says, early in the morning, as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look! The fig tree you cursed has withered. And Jesus replies to them, Have faith in God. As they're leaving the temple, they find the fig tree withering from the roots. 
And Jesus' response to them points to the fact that this fig tree is in fact a parable for the religion that they were observing in the temple. A place that was so incredibly busy, but a place that had no spirituality. What Jesus is saying is a true religion is approaching God through faith. Not a flurry of activity, not an appearance of religion. But that's why he says in verse 22, have faith in God. Now some people have read verse 22 and then even the, the, the verses that follow as a description, as an instruction manual for his disciples. Here, this is how you curse a fig tree. And what you need to understand is Jesus' response to Peter and the disciples, have faith in God, is not how to curse a fig tree. He's telling them how not to become the fig tree. He's telling them not to live a life that has all the appearance of life but nothing of value under the surface. Have faith in God. It's not about religion. And please, I understand, religion's got 42 different definitions. And so some of you are like, but it is religion. I, okay, let me, let me define religion. Religion is about the time, the place, the specific activity that you do. The time, place, and the specific activity that you do. But that religion has no life behind it. That religion is a fig tree with a lot of leaves, but no fruit. Have faith in God. So what does that look like? What does having faith in God have to do? It's having faith in God doesn't lead you to empty religious observation. It leads you to a pouring out of real faith of the gospel. But having faith in God, not faith, I'm sorry, let me, let me restate that, I said that wrong. Having faith in God doesn't lead to empty religion but a pouring out of the real fruit of the gospel. The fruit of the gospel will burst off you. We're all familiar with Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, with the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. All of those things are called the fruit of the Spirit. If you have faith in God, the Spirit is working within you to develop those fruit. The, 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 the interesting thing is for many of us, what we have done is boiled those fruit of the Spirit down to religious disciplines. But what tree do you know that when it's trying to bear fruit, just tries really hard? I want an apple. That's not how fruit comes. Fruit comes from taking care of the soil. Watering the roots, giving it the proper sunlight, caring for it. And the point of the fruit of the Spirit is if you have faith in God, and you are nurturing that faith like you would nurture the roots of a tree. And as it grows, you start to see the fruit pop out. fruit of the gospel comes out of us. It's the fruit of the spirit. I'm going to have you turn one place. Romans chapter 15. Would you turn there real quick? As you're turning there, I'll just say this. I was telling my wife last night, I think it's funny. We had our staff pastor and elder retreat last weekend. And while we did it, we did a couple of Bible studies. And my intent was not to do Romans 15 this morning. I did Romans 15 at the staff retreat, but as I'm studying, that's the only thing I got to keep coming up in my head. And so... You're welcome. It's coming again for your staff elder pastors. 
To have faith in God produces the fruit of the gospel. What in the world are you talking about when you say the fruit of the gospel? It's what's listed in Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. Verse 1, now we are who are strong, have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not to please ourselves. Each one of us is to please his neighbor for his good to build him up. See, if you're nurturing your faith in God, one of the fruit of the gospel that is going to come popping out on your limbs is a radical love for your neighbor. Is that you? Bear the weaknesses of those without strength. When you think of specific people around you who are really struggling... Is it in you to come alongside them and seek to bear their weakness? Or do they just bother you? A fruit of the gospel is a radical love for your neighbor. Verse 3, even Christ didn't please himself. On the contrary, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. One of the fruit of the gospel is a willingness to be embarrassed for Jesus. Are you? The gospel has taken real hold in your heart and in your life. And you're not just all leaves. And you're going to open your mouth. I go to church on Sunday. It's not very embarrassing to walk into a place with hundreds of other people who are coming with the same purpose and intent in their mind. Are you willing to stand for Christ at work? Are you willing to open your mouth for Jesus at school? That's a fruit of the gospel. Or for whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction, so we might have hope through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures. Another fruit of the gospel is a passion for God's word. Running to God's word to find those things. Hope through endurance and through encouragement. Is that how you look at God's word? Do you see it as the sustenance that you desperately need each and every day to find your encouragement, to give you the strength to endure? Is that where you're running? That's a fruit of the gospel. For the gospel continues, verse 5, Now may the God who gives endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another according to Jesus Christ. The fruit of the gospel is the ability and passion and desire to live in harmony with other believers. Think just for a moment. Are you living in harmony with other believers right now? What is harmony? Harmony is not sounding exactly alike. That's melody. Harmony is singing other parts. Harmony is singing other pieces that bring the sound to its fullest conclusion. It, it makes it bigger and broader and more amazing and, and I'm going to be honest with you, not every harmony piece is, is equal. And some of us try to sing in harmony. And it doesn't go so well. But I think the reality is that too often in our churches, most people are just so dead set on not singing melody that we assume they're singing harmony and oh, praise Jesus for you, when in fact, they're not trying to be harmonious. They're just out of tune. 
fruit of the gospel. It means you live in harmony with other believers. The fruit of the gospel, verse 6, so that you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with one mind and one voice. The fruit of the gospel is everything you do is to bring glory to God. All you want at the end of the day is to put a smile on your Father's face. That is all you want. It's not, it's not anything else. It's to bring glory to God. Is that you? Or is it about your raise? Or is it about your car running right? I mean, those things, I want those too. But is your primary concern the glory of God? And finally, this verse 7, Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted you to the glory of God. A fruit of the gospel is an inability to get over the gospel. A fruit of the gospel is being so overwhelmed with how Jesus Christ accepted you that you can't help but accept other people because you have tasted grace, you have tasted mercy, and you will never get over it. And so everybody you come into contact, you, you know they need that grace, you know they need that mercy, and so that's what just flows out of you. Accept other people as Christ has accepted you. How did Christ accept you? You're a sinner. You're rebellious. You committed treason in his eyes. You shook your fist in the face of God. And yet while you were a sinner, he laid down his life for you. God's accepted you. God accepted you in your brokenness. That's a churchy thing. Well, you're, you're, you're welcome here. You're broken. You're welcome here. And you are welcome here. But a fruit of the gospel is not being willing to stay where you are. A fruit of the gospel is saying, I am broken, but I'm going to keep moving forward. I'm going to have faith in God, and I'm going to watch the fruit come out of my life. As the power of the Holy Spirit, you know, the one who, 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 who murdered, killed people. I don't want to say murdered. That's a different connotation. The Holy Spirit, the one who killed people simply by, by appearing the, the, the one who brought great power enough to even spread the Red Sea. The one who made a man like David become a king for all the ages. God doesn't want you to stay there. He wants you to live in light of that gospel. He wants you to overflow with these fruit. Are you? Are you giving the appearance that you are? Well, what's the reality? And don't let yourself become a fig tree. Would you pray with me? God, thanks for your pursuit of us in Jesus Christ. God, I thank you that you love these people in this room far more than I ever could. Thank you. That the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, his willingness to lay himself down on the cross, was enough for each and every single one of us in this room. And God, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts. I pray that we would yield to your spirit, that we would allow the power of Christ to not just dwell in us, but to be active in us. I pray that each and every one of us would begin to see the fruit of the gospel, the just bursting out on our limbs. Lord, I pray that we would stop being so focused on each and every individual fruit and instead be 
focused on who you are and what you've done for us. God, may we never get over the gospel. May it be a constant reminder of how far from you we were and how far you were willing to run for us. God, I ask that you would change our hearts. And Lord, I, I do, I pray, you'd start with mine.